Grace. Well, we're going to be looking um, into uh, the book of 1 Corinthians as uh, we began it last week. Um, as I said then, we're going to be uh, really going through the whole book, but over the course of about a year, we'll be doing little sections of it and other Bible teaching and other events will come in between the sections. We started it last week. If you want to find the page, some of you are doing that. We might as well do that right away. It's page 1144 in the Bible uh, near you, if you're using one of those. Otherwise, uh, no idea where it is in your Bible, but begin at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. Uh, right. As we heard last week, it was uh, a letter written to a church in a city called Corinth, in the early days of uh, the Christian church, uh, about 30 years uh, approximately after Jesus was raised from the dead, we thought last week about their world, the kind of world they lived in. We thought about the background to the church there. We saw that there were lots of links with uh, their kind of world and our kind of world. And uh, we were beginning to, to learn from that. We saw that it was a church that had some real problems, some real struggles. Uh, and if you've had a chance to read through the book during the week, you would have seen that, well, it's quite a <laughs> collection of issues that are covered by the Apostle Paul as he writes to them. Uh, it, it, Paul starts off, as we saw last week in the first part of this first chapter, reminding them of the foundations that there were actually good foundations, that no matter how many things were going wrong, no matter how confused they were, no matter what the challenges, actually their foundations were good, they were strong. Uh, they were in Christ, they were, they were kind of safe in him in that sense. And that he'd been at work among them, so there was stuff they could get back to. Uh, and we saw all of that last week. If you missed that, let me encourage you, just... Click on www.portswood.org and you can find the uh, sermon there and listen to it. Or if you don't have internet, pick up a CD at the back. Um, uh, Amanda, I'm sure, will have one nearby. There's a couple left from last week uh, and this week's will be available shortly after the service as well. Anyway, let's, uh, that's the advert over. Let's uh, read uh, the, the bit that we're going to do today, uh, verses uh, 10 uh, to 17 to start with. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, well, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, that's Peter, still another... I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I was going to say this in the sermon. It's amazing. Paul's dictating this letter. Isn't he? The person who's writing, you know, he's just kind of thinking out loud, and the, the scribe has faithfully written down, oh, I don't know whether I remember that or that. It's a lovely little authentic touch, I think, uh, in that. And then verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
So Paul's been talking about all they have in Christ. As we saw last week, these first nine verses are all about what Jesus has done for them. He mentions Jesus like someone who's, as I said last week, recently fallen in love with someone, has to keep mentioning their name quite often. Nine times in these first nine verses, uh, Paul talks about Jesus. And he goes on to say, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 10, he appeals to them. It's a strong word. He says, I really want this for you. This is what I really want. This really matters to me. I'm appealing to you. It's really strong. And he calls them brothers and sisters, brothers. Again, that's a really kind of strong family word. It's, it's got more than just brothers and sisters. Tom Wright, in his little really helpful book in the Paul for Everyone series, in 1 Corinthians, he does his own translation and he, he, he translates it, Dear Family. Whenever he has that phrase, brothers or brothers and sisters, it includes sisters. It's not just about men. He's talking to them as, my dear family, I really care about this. This matters to me so much. Do you know, out of interest, those of you into trivia, although it's not really trivial, Paul uses that phrase, brothers, brothers and sisters, dear family, 39 times in the book of 1 Corinthians. The closest it comes uh, to the the next... uh, book in which whoever counts these things, I don't know, but the next book that he writes where it comes anywhere near to it is Romans and he uses the phrase 19 times, 39 times in Corinthians, dear family, dear brothers and sisters, I really care about you, this really matters to me, he says. So what is it that he's wanting so much for them? What is it that makes him feel this pull of his dear family that he's so concerned about? Well, there it it is, isn't it? Right there on the page. He wants them to be united. He doesn't want there to be divisions among them. He says, I want you to share a mindset, as we shall see, verse 10. That you agree with one another, there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That doesn't mean they're all going to think the same thing about everything, every single issue. But it means that there's a a sense of unity among them. That word, uh, perfectly united, is the word that is translated in the New Testament for mending nets. You know, in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 1, it talks about uh, some of the disciples were mending their nets. It's this idea of restoring something to how it should be functioning. They were getting their nets back to their proper use. Paul is saying, I want you to be united, and, and being united is like getting you back fit for purpose as, as a community. Again, that's what he's saying. Unity is what he wants for them. Unity is what Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17. It matters to him. And he says, I want you to be perfectly united in mind and thought. It's this idea of having a mindset that they share. Not necessarily the same opinions, but the same approach. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about what that mindset is. He said, I want you to have that mindset that is yours in Jesus Christ, which is like Jesus. And he goes in Philippians 2 to, to list a whole way in which the, the, the way this mindset, this way of thinking, this way of behaving towards one another in relationship within the Christian community is like Jesus's. He wants them to be united. He wants us to be united as we relate to others in Christian community, in this community, and, oh, this is a bit more difficult, in other Christian communities too. 
Why does Paul write this? Well, verse 11 tells us. He writes it because they're not quite there yet, are they? (laughs) To put it mildly. He actually says that he's heard from Chloe's people. Don't know quite who that was, but uh, the scholars read a commentary. They'll give you various options. He's heard that they're quarrelling. They're quarrelling. They're not united. They're forming separate groups around their favourite leaders or their favourite teachers. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Yeah, Paul. Others are saying, oh no, I follow Cephas. That's the Aramaic word for Peter. Some are saying, no, I follow Apollos. Apollos was one of the leaders in Corinth, as we'll see in the next few chapters. Some are saying, no, Apollos, it's all about Apollos for me. And some are saying, well, I follow Christ. You know, there's always someone super spiritual in there, isn't there? You know, who say, well, I follow only, you know, and I've got the hotline to Christ. You know, I don't care what anyone else says. You just listen to me. I'll tell you what Jesus really thinks, you know. That's the kind of atmosphere uh, that's going on there. That's what's happening around them. Can be a problem today, can it? In churches, I'm not saying it's so here, but we need to be careful. Between churches, certainly. Tribalism in the evangelical world, let alone the wider Christian world, is is appalling, isn't it? It all grows up around the people we like best, the events we like going to. Is it New Word Alive or Old Word Alive or Spring Harvest or New Wine or Keswick? Different people kind of cohere around those groups. Authors. And it can lead to real divisions. It can do. It needn't, but it can do. If you scratch underneath a church bust up, what do you find? Especially as the years go by. Recently, I was involved, some of you were too, uh, in uh, some, some stuff that went back into history. And I, I, I was at a church that had had a split years ago. And I asked quite a few people, well, what was it all about then? It was a long time ago. Yeah, nobody could remember. Nobody I asked could remember it. The, the actual issue, but they could remember the people involved. See, that's often what it boils down to. Personalities at the end of the day. And God speaks in his word through passages like this. And he says, Paul says, look, this is not what God wants. It's not good. It shouldn't be happening. It's out of order. And here we're given two good reasons in this passage why it's out of order. Why we shouldn't be uh, quarrelling. Why there shouldn't be these kind of bust-ups here. Two reasons why it's out of order. Two things that we can get into our, our heads which may help us to avoid these kind of bust-ups as far as we're concerned. Here's the first one, and it's in verses 13 to 16. He says, look, first of all, there's the central place that Jesus has. The central place of Jesus. You see the point that Paul is making there in those verses 13? He says, look, Jesus Christ is not divided. He's not split up into little bits where one person has one part of him or one person has another part of him. No, he is one. And not what's more, as he said earlier in the chapter, you are one in him. You've all got connected to him. Maybe that's why he said such a great deal in the first nine verses about Jesus and about how in Jesus they've been set apart, as we saw last week. Jesus has been working among them. Jesus has given them all the gifts, or God has given them all the gifts they need in Jesus. And here Paul is saying, look, the central place of Christ is crucial. You're connected with Jesus. 
And then he uses his own name to make the point. It's wisely he doesn't say he doesn't say was Paul crucified for you or was a pot were you baptized into the name of Apollos and so on. But he does use his own name. And you see what he's saying by by kind of implication there. He's saying that Jesus is central because Jesus was crucified for them. Paul says Jesus is the one who was he died for you. Jesus is the source of your salvation. You're all bound to him. Your life together is in him. That's true for all of you, says Paul, who are believers in Jesus. So so how come you're dividing up and fighting each other all the time? Don't you see that, that Jesus is central? And if Jesus is central and you're connected to him, that thing is bigger and more important than busting up, dividing, quarreling. And he goes on to say, doesn't he, that the sign of their being connected with Jesus, the sign that that Jesus is everything to them, the sign that uh, that they're loyal to Jesus, is their baptism. He goes on to say, you weren't baptised into the name of Paul. No, you're baptised into the name of Jesus. When you get baptised, you show your loyalty not to Portswood Church or Highfield Church or Above Bar Church. You don't show your loyalty to, you know, Philip Yancey or, or Tom Wright or John Piper or whoever your favourite author is. You, you, you don't kind of um, show your loyalty to anything except Jesus. You're baptised into Jesus Christ. You share his life. You're beginning a new life in resurrection power with him as he lives in you. That's the sign of your baptism. And if that's true, how come other loyalties, other than your loyalty to Jesus, is splitting you up? Just as a sideline, just see what Paul is saying about baptism. He's saying it's how you mark your journey, the beginning of your journey with Christ. It's a sign of your new start. It's a sign that you're willing to be loyal to Jesus, to live a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And look, that's all baptism is, really. You know, some of us kind of think, oh, baptism, it's a really big deal. It isn't a really big deal. It's simply saying, I'm beginning with Jesus, I'm loyal to him, I, I, I'm, I'm showing in a symbol that I'm connected with him, and his life is for me, and is living through me, and that's what I want. That's all it is. You don't have to be perfect, you don't have to, you know, you can even be baptised without becoming a church member. You may not even be committed enough to this, to, to, to be in this church yet as a full-on member, but you can be baptised, you can show your loyalty to Jesus. It's a simple thing, really. There's no such thing in the Bible, you know, as someone who follows Jesus, who begins a new life with Jesus, and does not get baptised. There's nothing nothing like that. Everyone who begins to follow Jesus in the Bible gets baptised. So, why don't you do it if you haven't? It's good. It's helpful. It's being obedient. Doesn't make you a better Christian? doesn't do anything for you really, except it shows that your beginning, or you've begun, or your life is about loyalty to Jesus. That's, that's the beginning and end of it. And he tells us to do that. That's why Paul says the Corinthians' baptism is a sign of the main thing in their life, Jesus. The centrality of Jesus. So divisions start growing... When our connections with other believers, either in our community or maybe even beyond it, and I hope we do have connections with believers beyond our community, 
if those connections are not based on Jesus, when he stops being central to that, divisions start to grow. Because it's about the people we like, not Jesus. It's about our pet ideas about theology, not Jesus. It's about the flavour of our worship, not Jesus. It's about how we want our church to be, not Jesus. The Christian events we go to. Not you know, all of these, there's nothing wrong with having ideas and opinions about all of those things, but if they become the basis of our connections with other believers, then divisions don't take long to grow. So to avoid bust-ups, either in our church or between us and other churches or other Christian groups or other individuals, let's keep our loyalty to Jesus as the thing that matters most as we relate to one another and to other Christians. The central place of Jesus, that's one reason why division is out of order. Let's look at the next one. And we need to read on 1 Corinthians 17 again, verse, and then on to chapter 1, rather, verse 17, on to 25. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. That's a quote from Isaiah, that's God speaking in Isaiah. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So here's another reason why division is out of order then. Out of order for the Corinthians and out of order for us. Number two, the powerful message of the cross. We read again, uh, out of Paul's diversion about being baptised, as I said, it's an amazing little kind of aside that he comes. He comes out of that in verse 17, on the idea that Christ had sent him, Paul, not to baptise people. It doesn't really matter who baptises, and that's not the issue. He was sent to preach the good news, to preach the gospel. That was the key. And he says, I was sent by God to preach that gospel to you, Corinthians, and to others. And then he says a really interesting thing. He says, it is not with human wisdom. Now, if you were a Corinthian and you heard that word, Paul say that, or the letter being read out, which is probably how it was, you know, the letter came from Paul. Everyone today, we won't have a talk. We're going to have a letter from Paul and someone would read it out. And when you heard Paul say, I came to, I've been called to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, Not with human wisdom. When you heard those words, Sophia Logos, 
When you heard the word Sophia, wisdom in Greek, you would have all set, sat up. Because in your culture in Corinth, wisdom was a really big deal. You see, as we saw last week, uh, uh, Corinth was rather fancied itself as a bit of an intellectual centre. And people would come, big speakers would come and talk about wisdom. And everyone in the city would get excited about it. There'd be public lectures on it. And there would people come with big ideas and impressive speaking and complicated theories. And everyone would love to talk about it. A bit like, uh, I was reading somewhere that apparently in some, some cities, you know, if there's a, a, a great symphony orchestra in their city, you know, and uh, they play and not all the city comes, but enough people do, everyone's talking about it. You know, it's that kind of, that was the atmosphere. Everyone was talking about the great, the latest great idea or the big speaker or, or the big idea of wisdom. And, and that was all part of your life in Corinth. And Paul says, this message that Jesus told me to preach has got nothing to do, is nothing like this human wisdom that you just love, that you get off on in, one, in Corinth. That's what he's saying. In fact, he goes even further, as we shall see, to say that if I had come, if I'd presented, if the message I got was like this kind of Corinthian, Greek, uh, Roman, high ideas of wisdom, then he said, actually, if I preached that message like that, it would have emptied the cross of its power. What's all that about? Why does Paul say this, and what's it got to do with their divisions? Well, they were thinking like the people around them, weren't they? And how easy it is for us to do that. They were thinking about the big personality speakers, as we shall see as the book goes on. They were thinking about all the sophisticated arguments that people were showing. They were thinking about the people that came along and said, if you do what I say, I'll give you special knowledge and you'll have the hot route, to, hot, hot, hot line to, to spirituality and everything else. That was what was really getting them going in their culture. And perhaps it was that kind of mindset which was leading them to say, well, I really think Apollos is a great speaker. <laughs> and others were saying, no, Paul's my hero. They were treating the leaders like they were treating the travelling wisdom kind of gurus that were coming into Corinth. And Paul says that the message of the cross will not allow for division based upon intellectual pride or your favourite celebrity kind of uh, ideas or speakers or whatever. In fact, says Paul, the cross, the message of the cross, torpedoes it, blows it clean out of the water. What do we learn about this message of the cross then here? First thing Paul says in verses 17 and 18, the message of the cross divides humanity. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's a powerful effect that the message of the cross has. It divides humanity into two groups. And this is pretty sobering stuff. What are those groups? Those who are perishing on one side and those who are being saved on the other. To the first group, those who are perishing, the message of the cross is utter foolishness. Utterly ridiculous, as we shall see. To that group, it means nothing. It's just, well, you know, forget that. Give me another drink. You know, I want to forget life. I mean, it's, it's just outside of it. But to those of us, he says, Paul, us as God's people who are being saved, that same message is the power of God. 
Amazing. That's something to think about, isn't it? When we want to divide up. Do our divisions matter that much when a good proportion of humanity is heading for judgment? Because that's what Paul is saying. A serious thought. You might want to talk about that in home groups. So, so I know some of you uh, have been talking about the new, the new church moving into Mecca uh, in a few couple of weeks' time. And, and Peter and I were, uh, met the leaders of that with Graham uh, Archer the other day. Some of you say, well, what about a new church coming? Look, <laughs> there's only two groups. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. There's enough people out there perishing that need to hear the message of the cross from anyone. That what, what unites us is more important. There's only one group that matters as far as believers are concerned. And that's the fact that we're being saved and those who don't yet know Jesus are perishing. And we know that doesn't mean they're getting cold. <laughs> it means they're going towards a lost eternity without God. It's a message that divides humanity. Secondly, it's a message that subverts, undermines human wisdom. This message of the cross that Paul shares is all about what God has done and what God continues to do. So that's why he quotes Isaiah. This is God speaking. God has got something else in mind. God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. God is going to, to frustrate the intelligence of the intelligent, so to speak, where it says it there. God is speaking about how he will act in such a way that human wisdom will become utterly bankrupt. It's, it will be completely useless. All the things we value most about our sophisticated ideas and our great ways of working and our, our ways of trying to work out our way to God. Paul is saying that what God has done has basically consigned all of that to junk. It's not that it's, it's, it, it, well, it's not, not that it's all useless, but as far as anything that really matters, as far as knowing God is concerned, it is useless. That's what Paul goes on to say. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, God brought in another way. All the wisdom of the world simply cannot find our way to God. God has to do something and he chooses to work in a way that seems to be completely foolish, as we shall see. And then he acts through a message, a simple, straightforward message, which we share with other people. And as they, as we hear, as we understand, as we accept, as we believe that message, God's rescue, God's salvation comes into people's lives. And you know, you don't have to be smart to understand it. You don't have to be a professor to believe it. You don't have to be you know, super sophisticated to embrace it. Anyone can receive God's message, God's goodness, the truth about what God has done into our lives. You just need to believe the good news. And and as Paul goes on, it almost seems as if he's building the suspense. And we're thinking, well, okay, Paul, you're talking about this message divides humanity. You're talking about how it subverts human wisdom. You're talking about God doing something else. Okay, Paul, what is the message then? What is it? And he kind of holds it back until verses 22 to 25. It's the message of Christ crucified. There it is. Verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. 
And Paul says in these verses, that's why it doesn't fit with human wisdom. Because human beings just can't cope with the idea that the, 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 the God of the universe should be crucified. Well, it's a pretty strange idea, isn't it? It's a pretty out there kind of concept. In fact, Paul says Jews were looking for a powerful sign, a big event. They were looking for a a Messiah who would come, who is victorious, who kicks out the Romans, who puts the Jewish nation back in the Premier League again, or the champion, you know, win the Championship Cup, or, or whatever. That's what they were expecting God to do. That's the kind of Messiah we want, someone who does things, someone who's victorious, someone who's powerful, someone who puts us where we should be at the top of the tree. That's what the Jews wanted. And the Greeks wanted something a bit different. They wanted something, as we saw earlier, that is intellectually elitist, something really, really sophisticated. They wanted gods that were so complicated that you needed years of study to realize that you'll never understand them. No offense to Buddhism, I've not read much Buddhism, but what I have read, seems, Buddhism is, seems to me a bit like that. You can shoot me down, forgive me, I don't want to junk you if you're a Buddhist. But, but you know, it just seems that it, it, it's quite hard to understand. It takes years until you reach, well, I think in some religions, you need many, many lives in order to, to reach enlightenment or understanding. That's the kind of thing that human wisdom, human beings look for. And so what does Paul have to give? This group of people who are demanding a powerful God who comes in and does things, or this group of people who are demanding intellectual sophistication, what does he give them? He gives them a message of Christ crucified. To a Jew, that is utterly scandalous. That's the word in there. When it says stumbling block to Jews, it means scandal. And it's translated stumbling block as if, you know, I'm walking along and I go, whoop, trip over a stumbling block. Actually, the word means something more like coming to the edge of the Grand Canyon and falling over it. It was such a huge, huge issue for the Messiah to be crucified, to be defeated. Uh, 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 Christ crucified, Messiah crucified to a Jewish mind is like saying fried ice. The things don't fit. It was so far beyond their expectation, their realisation. And then for, them, for the Messiah to be under God's curse, hanging on a tree, like the law said, anyone who was judged by God would be, was just completely out of it. But, of course, how else was God going to deal with our rebellion? Unless he came in and took that curse upon himself. To the Greeks, it was utterly stupid. It was utterly foolish. The whole idea that God could kind of come into our world in that way anyway, let alone in weakness being crucified, they despised this message. They thought it was ridiculous. And you know, it still plays out like that in our world too. But what comes of this powerful message? Verse 18 those who are being saved. Same word comes up in, in verse, verse, uh, 20, uh, well, uh, verse 21. What comes of it? People are saved. Those who believe are saved. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. Those who believe are contrasted with the world who don't know God by implication. Those who believe this message, know God. Which, of course, is what Jesus said. He said, this is eternal life, that you may know God. Paul says, 
You don't know God any other way but through Christ crucified on the cross. You don't know God's rescue. You don't know God's salvation unless it comes through Christ crucified on a cross. Verse 24, Paul says, those whom God has called. What does that mean? Well, Tom Wright talks about it as being, it's like shorthand for those people who are are caught up, become part of God's big salvation movement. What is this being saved? What is this salvation movement? Well, all that God's been doing throughout the whole of history to change people, to ultimately change the universe, to bring all things back into right relationship with him again. He started it. He now offers it out in the good news to everyone who received it. And who does receive it? Well, it can be, Paul says, Jews and Greeks. Anyone who believes can become part of this great movement of God to rescue humanity, to to complete everything, to put right what's been wrong, to, to kind of bring all things back into kind of harmony again. Those who believe know that. So, if you're not one of those people, well, let's put it this way. If you are one of those people, thank God for it. <laughs> Rejoice in that and realize that that's more important than getting busted up with other <laughs> Christians. If you don't yet believe it, why don't you become one of these people caught up in God's great movement of salvation? One of these people who, as they believe, realize that they become connected to God's Messiah, God's anointed King, God's rescuer. Ask him for that salvation. Receive that into your life. Turn from, from the old way that you're living and trust yourself to him. Because in Jesus, Paul says, we find God's power. Power from a cross. Power that's pouring into our lives. Power that comes out of an interbrokenness. A different kind of victory, but but ultimately the victory of God. Power and love pouring into other people's lives as we walk his way, as we live his life, as we follow his leading. In Jesus we find God's wisdom. We don't need to posture. We don't need to pose. We don't need to fight for our place. We don't need to hold on to our rights and reputations. There's something better in Christ. He is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he can be at work. He can be your friend. He can be the centre of your life. Your loyalty can be around him forever. Because of what he's done on the cross. So if Christ is in the central place, if our loyalty is really to him, and if we really get the message of the cross... Although we'll never fully get it, it's a deep mystery. But if we really get it, that actually there's no room for human kind of pride and wisdom. There's no room there for personality groups, for power struggles, for petty ambitions. If we really get that, we can stop or avoid quarrelling and find another way in the power of God. Where's Dan Pete?